Tonight on The Readout. Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great effing criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. Those words from Trump lawyer Eric Hirshhorn were directed at John Eastman. But after yesterday's explosive testimony, that advice could equally well apply to Donald Trump. But first, we begin tonight with breaking news from the January 6th committee. Former White House counsel Pat Cipollone has been subpoenaed. He'd previously refused to cooperate, and it cannot come at a more critical time. With new legal exposure for the twice-impeached former president, after former aide to Mark Meadows Cassidy Hutchinson provided what certainly looks like a smoking gun to support multiple possible criminal charges against Trump starting with perhaps the most damning aspect of her testimony, as Hutchinson exposed in the clearest detail yet that the former president was aware of the threat of violence from his supporters on January 6th. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. That testimony is especially damning in light of the former president's speech at the Ellipse that day to his armed followers. Fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. In fact, that kind of fight like hell, fight, fight, fight language was precisely what the former president's lawyers said would be foolish to include. Both Mr. Hirschman and White House Counsel's Office were urging the speechwriters to not include that language for legal concerns and also for the optics of what it could portray the president wanting to do that day. Hutchinson offered ample references to explicit criminality while recounting conversations with the then White House counsel, the aforementioned Pat Cipollone, and specific crimes that he was worried about in the lead up to the 6th, involving a plan for the former president to march to the Capitol with his followers. Pat was concerned it would look like we were obstructing justice or obstructing the electoral college count. He was also worried that it would look like we were inciting a riot or encouraging a riot to erupt on the Capitol, at the Capitol. In fact, Hutchinson added that Cipollone said this just before they left for the ellipse. Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, Please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Of course, thus far, Cipollone had refused to cooperate with the committee. Another figure with questions to answer is also refusing to testify, at least for now, Jenny Thomas. An attorney representing her said in a letter to the committee that it needs to provide, quote, better justification for Thomas to provide testimony. That attorney claims that Thomas's correspondence with coup memo lawyer John Eastman, a former clerk to her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, provides no basis for an interview. Joining me now, Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent, Nick Ackerman, former assistant special Watergate prosecutor, and Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor. I'm going to go in reverse order and start with you, Paul. The significance in your view of the subpoena of Pat Cipollone. I'm going to read a little bit of this release here that says the select committee investigation has revealed evidence that Mr. Cipollone repeatedly raised legal and other concerns about President Trump's activities on January 6th and in the days that preceded. 
While the Select Committee appreciates Mr. Cipollone's earlier informal engagement with our investigation, the committee needs to hear from him on the record, as other former White House counsels have done in other congressional investigations. Any concerns Mr. Cipollone has about the institutional prerogatives of the office he previously held are clearly outweighed by the need for his testimony. Your thoughts on this subpoena, Paul, given all of the things that he was concerned about from the speech to walking to the Capitol. He said they could be charged with every crime imaginable. So, Joy, the House panel had to subpoena Pat Cipollone, but it's probably not going to work. Uh, With a House investigation, he will do the Trump thing of trying to beat the clock, and he will probably be able to stall by making bogus objections until the midterm elections when the panel is likely to get neutralized or co-opted by Republicans, but the feds can still hold Cipollone accountable. The FBI should have a nice sit down with him, or he needs to be hauled into a federal grand jury. He needs to be required to answer on the record why on January 3rd, he told Trump he would face serious legal problems if he went to the rally, if he went to the Capitol. Cipollone is the connection between the way that Trump incited the mob and the criminal legal theories that Trump had about alternate electors. But so far, Cipollone is acting like a coward, not a patriot. You know, or or Nick Ackerman, the other way of thinking about this, and there's been a little bit of this sort of scuttlebutt out there, that people like Cipollone who want to still appear to be loyal to Donald Trump want to be subpoenaed. Because then, like the documentary filmmaker who wants all his future documentary subjects to to not think that he, you know, will snitch on them after filming them um, and then somehow be testified, you know, he probably wanted it to come from a subpoena. Therefore, he's doing it because he's under duress. Maybe the duress is what gives Cipollone the opportunity to speak out. Because here, by the way, he came down on the right side on all of these questions, urging Trump not to break the law. No, I think you could be right. Um, we just don't know what tack Cipollone's going to take. Paul may be 100% right that Cipollone is going to want to look as though he's a loyal, a loyalist to Donald Trump. On the other hand, um, he does come across from the testimony as being the person in the room that is basically telling Donald Trump not to commit any crimes. Uh, and he does come across as somebody who is on the right side on all of these issues. So you're right. A lot of times witnesses will come in um, only with a subpoena so that it doesn't appear as though they're bending over backwards uh, to cooperate. I mean, he really has no basis to fight the subpoena. He has no attorney-client privilege with Donald Trump. Uh, There is no attorney-client privilege for the office of uh, the White House counsel. He represents the institution, not the individual. Uh, He doesn't have, Trump certainly doesn't have um, any kind of executive privilege here because executive privilege just doesn't apply um, to criminal activity. I mean, that issue was resolved in 1974 in U.S. v. Nixon by the Supreme Court. So, yeah, he could wind up deciding, I'm going to take the subpoena, I have no choice, and be forced to testify. You could be 100% right. Paul could also be right. And we'll just have to see what happens. We'll have to see what happens. You know, but, but meanwhile, Peter, I just want to remind people of what in real time Pat Cipollone was hearing and what he was understanding to be taking place 
Uh, this is some of the video. This was, this was some of the sort of video audio uh, bits that were played during this most recent hearing. It's damning stuff. It was clear there were people perched in trees with AR-15s. Take a listen to a little bit of this. White males, brown cowboy boots. They had Glock-style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that subject um, weapon on his right hip. After that, he's in the tree. Motor one, make sure BPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the right, right side hip. Peter, from your law enforcement experience, can you think of any reason why any White House security detail, Secret Service, why any chief of staff would allow the president of the United States to be essentially accompanied by and mix in with people who were armed the way you just heard described and then be allowed to go to the Capitol after having demanded that the armed people be allowed to go to? Well, Joe, I can't imagine a more difficult domestic security setting than a roundup mob where there are reports of people in trees with semi-automatic long guns. And you've got the president of the United States who is whipping that crowd into a frenzy along with other folks then demanding to march with them down to the Capitol. And what's interesting, when you look at the, the president's statements that came out in the hearing that he allegedly said, he didn't say they're not here to hurt anyone. He said they're not here to hurt me. So when you think about that and you break it down, and this, of course, was in the context of him trying to get the Secret Service to remove the magnetometers to allow greater crowds to come in because it would be a better shot on TV. But I'm I'm continually stunned that there was not far more bloodshed on January 6th than occurred. And the more that this information comes out, this stunning footage of people in trees where people in law enforcement are saying, we've got folks with uh, AR-15s, with long guns, with other, not clubs, not flagpoles, not stakes or canes, but actual semi-automatic rifles, that's an extraordinarily dangerous situation. And again, I think we're, we're blessed that there was not far, far more bloodshed than we saw. And it just highlights how close we all were on January 6th to extraordinary violence. Well, can you imagine, to say with you for just a moment, Peter, what might have happened, use your lurid imagination here, if Trump had been allowed to enter the Capitol, which apparently was his plan, entering the Capitol either with Secret Service, armed Secret Service accompanying him, or with Proud Boys and Three Percenters and Oath Keepers accompanying him, what might have happened inside of the chamber, inside of the House chamber? You know, Joy, I can't even begin to try and fathom what that would look like, where Trump would go in, who he would demand to talk to, whether he would enter the chamber and try and make a speech in front of Congress or go into the rotunda, what the Secret Service would do on the one hand, trying to protect the president from harm. On the other hand, again, a crowd whipped into a frenzy that we know was armed, that we know was, you know, at that time or imminently about to start fighting Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police officers to forcefully gain entrance. I don't know how you have this violent activity going on all around the steps of the Capitol, the east side, the west side, bear spray, people, you know, all the images that we've seen again and again and again. And in the middle of that, to have President Trump and a motorcade driving up 
exiting into this chaos and trying to do something, I, I, it is difficult for me to envision. And I think it speaks exactly to the almost panic that you heard recounted about what Pat Cipollone was saying that, you know, we can't go down there because we will end up breaking so many different laws. I can't imagine what that scene would look like. Just I, I have to imagine like a, absolute chaos. It looked like a tin pot coup which is what it was. Um, Paul, let me, let me ask you about this, because there there is the, the sort of, indeed, I mean, Paul, there is the um, the first person to the finish line, right, can maybe get a deal kind of thing that I, I know a little bit about just from knowing you and talking to you a lot about the way that prosecutors think. So you have John Eastman, he's dropped his lawsuit, um, essentially to, to, to keep his call logs away from the committee, meaning he's now becoming more cooperative. We know that his phone was seized. He's, he's, he's going through some things right now. When you've got that kind of thing happening and some people starting to cooperate with the committee, this is not necessarily to do with any legal case. Does that start to put the fear of God in your mind into other people who, I don't know, may have wanted a pardon, may know, think they committed crimes? Absolutely. So the House panel is getting closer and closer and hopefully the Prosecutors at the Justice Department are playing super close attention because people very close to Trump are being embroiled in this scandal. So yesterday we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, she was in proximate contact with the two most powerful people in the country, with Trump and his chief of staff, her boss. And so I think that Eastman knows that there's the world before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony and the evidence we have before and the evidence that we have after, the evidence that we have after is increasingly pointing the spotlight at people at the top, including Donald Trump. And so he's hoping now that he's this obscure law professor. Maybe he could be, you know, a kind of small fish and help get the big fish. Maybe. But on the other hand, Joey, Eastman's kind of crazy. He, he's kind of wacky. And so who knows? He doesn't seem to be kind of um, uh, it doesn't add up when he does his math. For example, you know, he wanted to represent himself. So I, I, I'm not sure he's at a point where he's making any kind of rational decisions. But a lawyer yeah. would tell him to operate. You say not all the eggs are in the skillet. I hear you. Uh, let, let's uh, go to all of the potentials, uh, Nick Ackerman. I'm going to give you the task of talking about what potential crimes are on the table here. We had Liz Cheney describing what sure did sound like witness tampering and saying, hey, don't, you know, Donald Trump reads these transcripts. He wants to see that you're loyal. You've got that on the table. Um, you've got what sure sounds like sedition on the part of Trump, wanting to lead an armed insurrection personally into the Capitol, potentially trying to assault his own Secret Service agents to force them to take him, which, of course, you know, we're, we have questions about that. I would sure love to have those Secret Service agents on the record testifying under oath about that. What could Trump, in theory, be facing legally? Well, I think legally, if I were drafting the indictment right now, I'd be looking at this as an overall scheme to defraud the United States by stealing the election from Joe Biden. And as part of that scheme, the overriding falsehood in that scheme was Donald Trump's big lie that he won the election by a landslide and that it was stolen from him, which has been proven right across the boards by his own attorney general who told him he didn't win, by his own numbers guy who told him he didn't win, and by virtue of just common sense, because since 2016, when he first ran for president in the primaries, um, Roger Stone invented this whole 
you know, stop the steal for him, which he's been using ever since. So this is just a tactic. And that is part of this tactic. Uh, he then went on to try and pressure state authorities in battleground states to change the vote from him, from Biden to himself. He called up um, uh, Raffsenberger, the secretary of state of Georgia. He called up Governor Kemp to try and get him to call a special session of the legislature in Georgia and to also decertify the vote for Biden. Um, and when those things didn't work, I mean, including Randy Bauer, who he also tried to pressure, who was the Speaker of the House in Arizona. Yep. When that didn't work, he then tried to get a new attorney general who would write a letter to the state legislators saying that the right. election was won by fraud. And then yeah. on top of all that, he tried to pressure Mike Pence, uh, a scheme to pressure Mike Pence into basically refusing to certify the vote and came up with this crazy scheme of, of illegal electors that he just made up yeah. electors in the battleground states uh, that he wanted Mike Pence to count instead of the real electors. And when all of yeah. that didn't work, we found out yesterday that his last ditch effort was to use violence to stop the vote on January 6th. That was the whole yeah. point of it. We didn't know this before yesterday. Today, we know that, in fact, yeah. his plan, ultimately, his ultimate plan was to stop that vote on January 6th by creating violence and mayhem yep. throughout the Capitol, such that the next day they could all claim, well, the state should reconsider the vote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it summarized pretty well. We'll see if it ever actually goes to court. Peter Strzok, Nick Ackerman, Paul Butler, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, well, we need to talk about Mark Meadows. His utter failure to do his job as the insurrection raged on in Capitol Hill is the culmination of a political career riddled with bad judgment. The Readout continues after this. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. So that's when I went into his office. I saw that he was sitting on his couch on his cell phone. Same as the morning where he was just kind of scrolling and typing. The writers are getting really close. Have you talked to the president? He said, no, he wants to be alone right now. Still looking at his phone. So I start to get frustrated. I remember thinking in that moment, Mark needs to snap out of this. And I don't know how to snap him out of this, but he, he needs to care. At yesterday's hearing, we heard about the striking contrast between the enraged, violence-prone Donald Trump and his completely zombified chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on January 6th, who would only be brought back into his body by one of his top aides, Cassidy Hutchinson, as the MAGA mob broke into the Capitol, mentioning that Jim might be in danger. Jim, 
meaning Congressman Jim Jordan. Now, mind you, the chief of staff is supposed to be the most active member of the White House team. And Hutchinson's testimony depicted Meadows as someone who was anything but that on that critical day. Meadows was Donald Trump's fourth chief of staff in just over three years. And he was probably the most closely aligned with the extreme MAGA movement because of who Mark Meadows is. He emerged from the Tea Party movement, along with his friend, Jim Jordan, and was first elected to the House in 2012, campaigning on the birtherism, birtherism conspiracy theory. What we're going to do is take back our country. 2012 is the time that we're going to send Mr. Obama home to Kenya or wherever it is. We're going to do it. Huh. Oh, you went to Illinois, to Hawaii. Once in Congress, he found what was at the time the most far founded, co-founded what was at the time the most far right obstructionist conservative group, the House Freedom Caucus, with the likes of people like Jordan and Ron DeSantis. Good company, right? In 2013, Meadows helped engineer the fourth longest federal government shutdown in our country's history in hopes of stopping the Affordable Care Act. That shutdown cost the U.S. economy an estimated $24 billion. He has long advocated against the LGBTQ community, saying back in 2013 that if the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same-sex marriage, it would undermine democracy itself and spark a, quote, constitutional crisis. He also signed on to a 2019 amicus brief to the Supreme Court, advocating against adding LGBTQ people as protected under the Civil Rights Act because LGBTQ people do not actually exist per him, but rather are choosing, quote, actions, behaviors or inclinations. Meadows also supported alleged child molester Roy Moore when he ran for the Senate in Alabama in 2017. Moore denied those allegations. And we cannot forget in 2019 when Meadows paraded Lynn Patton a black member of the Trump administration like a prop during a hearing of former Trump attorney Michael Cohen to challenge Cohen's claims that Trump is a racist. Not once was she allowed to say a word. Meadows spoke for her. The list could just go on and on. And when it comes to January 6th, we continue to learn more and more about what Meadows knew ahead of time about the dangers on January 6th. Worse than his inaction might have been his inclination to not protect our democracy or even his former colleagues in Congress and their staffs from bodily harm, but rather protecting the insurrectionists themselves. A report last year from the January 6th committee says that Meadows sent an email prior to January 6th saying that the National Guard would be present at the Capitol to, quote, protect the pro-Trump people. Joining me now is Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark and author of Why We Did It, a travel log from the Republican Road to Hell. Subtle title there, uh, my friend. Tim, let's talk about this for a moment because the January 6th the, the sort of picture of, a, of an almost catatonic um, Mark Meadows sort of emerges throughout Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. But wouldn't he be the one person out of every one of the administration who would know exactly what Donald Trump knew, exactly what Donald Trump had planned? And if Donald Trump did plan to have violence as part of his plan, wouldn't he know that? Well, uh, I think it's always hesitant to to accuse the former president of having any kind of plan. This was in a motor, a reactor, but certainly Mark Meadows knew about you know Donald Trump's feelings and emotions and whims uh, better than anyone else. And remember, you went through that great rap sheet of Meadows's past, but we but skipped over. Uh, you know, you only so much time. Uh, skipped over when he lied about Donald Trump's COVID uh, diagnosis when then when and, and about how serious it was when, when Trump went to the mm-hmm. hospital. 
And it was Meadows, remember, that was sitting with Trump, um, you know, that whole time in the hospital. I was the only one at times besides the family that was in the room. So, you know, he had built that rapport with Trump. And he was the one, as we've seen from the other parts of these committee hearings, who was receiving the, the crazy emails from Ginny Thomas and the pillow guy and Sidney Powell, you know, that were accusing, you know, the Venezuelan, dead Venezuelan president of changing the machines. Uh, Meadows was bought in on all of that. He was not part of, you know, what's t- Bill Stepien called Team Normal, right? I mean, Meadows was fully bought in on on trying to overturn the election. And so I, I think that the most, that's why I agree for all the crazy uh, revelations about, about Trump yesterday, uh, because Cassidy was so close with Meadows, I, I thought that was the most critical thing. She she had has him dead to rights. I, he knew that there could be violence. Uh, she testified to that. And, and then when the violence was being perpetrated, he did not. He did nothing. He was the most powerful person short of Donald Trump in the whole country as far as being able to call in the National Guard, call in people and able to help. He did nothing. He was, uh, used, I love that word, catatonic. And so yeah. uh, I, I think that it's, it's, he's the key man right now, the critical man to bring in to, to, to continue to find out more information. Yeah, it was, as, it was as if he left his body every time she opened her mouth to tell her. They're, they're only saying Jim Jordan, like kind of snapped him out of it. That's his Tea Party friend. Um, I left out that he also committed election fraud. Uh, pretended he lived in a trailer in North Carolina that he didn't even own in order to vote there and that he was investigated for it. I want to play another uh, soundbite of Cassidy Hutchinson. And this is when she's describing, this is her trying to tell Mark Meadows, who's the chief of staff, that the protesters had breached the Capitol. They They were nearing the Capitol. And here's what happens. Yeah. So when I had gone over to the car, I went to open the door to let him know and he had immediately shut it. I don't know who he was speaking with. Um... It wasn't something that he regularly did, especially when I would go over to give him information. So I was a bit taken aback. And were you able to have that conversation a few moments later? Probably about 20 to 25 minutes later. There was another period in between where he shut the door again. You know, Tim, one of the big mysteries that's going to come out of this whole hearing is who is he talking to? Because it wasn't Trump, because Trump was giving his speech at the time. He does seem to be somebody who's in particular jeopardy. He is somebody who also got a million dollars from Trump from that $250 million slush fund. So Trump has kept him paid. I wonder if I I have this theory that that Trump is just sort of the next generation of the Tea Party, right? A lot of his strongest supporters are Tea Party people like Jim Jordan, like him, right? They're the Tea Party and that's the outgrowth of it. Are these people strong enough MAGA to go to jail for Donald Trump? I think that he that needs to be tested. And uh, obviously he uh, has been subpoenaed already. Uh, I, I think this is someone that, that possibly should be indicted uh, very soon. I, I, that was my biggest takeaway yesterday. I, I'll leave it to the legal experts on how, but the previous segment covered that. I think that he should be indicted. And and, and the financial part of this, I'm glad you mentioned that, Joy, is is really relevant. Uh, when I was working on the book, I, I was interviewing people that used to work for him and, and you know trying to figure out why, you know, this was a question of the book, why are people going along with this? And that was something that people kept coming back to with Meadows is that when he left, you know, he is not financially secure like like many of these other other folks that are that are independently wealthy. So I think that's an important element. And the other element to this is, uh, you know, the, he ha- he has to feel just this deep shame and guilt. I mean, Cassidy Hutchinson was his closest advisor. It's crazy that his closest advisor is a 24 year old woman. Yeah. You know, by the yeah. way, uh, uh, to the chief of staff, uh, such an important role. Uh, but but this was close advisor, and he's left her to h- hung out to dry. And she was the one that had, had the courage to stand up 
yesterday. Think about you know, how helpless that leaves him and how filled with guilt and shame. And I think that that's a big reason why you're going to see someone that feels that bad is going to lash out. Um, uh, you know, and and I think that will conti- you know, continue this kind of behavior that we've seen from him. You know, I like you, Tim. You're such a hopeful person that you think that people still have shame. <laughs> you think that they can still feel shame. And that makes me understand why you are a... No, Mark Meadows had shame. Man. He cried. He cried. <laughs> Remember when he cried? He cried when he was called a racist on the House floor recently. This is a person that can still feel a And then he showed the black lady. He said, look at her. But Mark Meadows can. He did. No, he said, look at her. Is she not yeah, black? Exactly. Is she not standing here before you being black in front of you? How dare you? Yeah, he did do that. Tim Miller. Look at her. Look at her. Tim Miller. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Have a good rest of the day. All right. The reversal of Roe v. Wade has some states scrambling to protect women's reproductive rights, while others are gleefully working to strip them away entirely. Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal joins me next. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. The Supreme Court's draconian decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is politically unpopular, with a majority of Americans opposing it. It's left us in a situation where women have been deemed by the court to have fewer rights than men, and women have more rights in some states than they do in others. The ruling has already created a legal mess, with abortion totally banned in some red states, other bans caught up in court, and some states just waiting for their bans to take effect, a kind of rolling prohibition. Essentially, your reproductive rights depend on if you live in a democratic state. 22 state attorneys general issued a statement on Monday proclaiming that they will not back down in the fight to protect abortion access. But that's easier said than done, even in some purple states. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is currently fighting an antiquated law that is so old, it barely reads in modern English, banning the intent thereby to procure the miscarriage of any such woman. That one is from 1931 but cannot hold a candle to Wisconsin's 1849 law, which criminalizes destroying the life of an unborn quick child, referring to the quickening, an archaic term used to refer to a fetus becoming alive. And late today, Arizona's Republican attorney general said that that state's 1864 ban was back in effect and that he would ask the court to vacate the injunction put into place after Roe v. Wade. Republicans aren't just sticking to those olden day laws. They're also, they've also introduced a law in Michigan in case that 1931 law does not hold up in court that would include harsh penalties for providers and would also ban the drug Plan B. The ban in Missouri is so ambiguous that a hospital system temporarily stopped providing Plan B yesterday to their rape victims out of fear that they're somehow violating it. Just a quick lesson for everyone. Plan B is categorically not abortion. 
If you're pregnant already, plan B will not work. All it does is delay your body from releasing an egg, making it impossible for fertilization to occur. Late today, the hospital reversed its position after Missouri's Republican governor and attorney general said the law, in fact, does not extend to contraception. And joining me now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and I apologize for my dog also being here. <laughs> she decided she wants to be part of the show. Um, that's Nala. Uh, well, so let's talk about this. The, Repu- the, the thing that has struck, I think, a lot of people, quite frankly, Congresswoman, is the absolute aggression of Republicans, the quick aggression in every single red state where they're going and digging up laws from the 19th century or the early 20th century, putting them in place immediately and going hard, saying you can't leave the state. Uh, we'll, we'll prosecute you if you fly out of state or drive out of state, that kind of thing. Whereas the Democrats, the response has felt muted, I think, to a lot of people. You've had the White House say, well, it would be dangerous to try to provide abortion services on federal land, which was something that was proposed by some advocates. And I think even Elizabeth Warren, you've had the administration essentially, it's already reported that they're unlikely to go with this list of ideas that Senator Warren and others have given to them that could like use the federal power. Um, the Senate tried to codify abortion protections, passing um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley's bill that can be bill that came out of the House, but it got, you know, filibustered. So are you concerned that the official party response has been too muted? Well, Joy, the first thing is we just cannot stop talking enough about these radical extremist Republicans and what they're doing across the country, digging in to try to find every way that they can criminalize pregnant people across the country. And that is really, really important because, you know, they're doing things that are not I mean, they're going to be challenged in court on some of these things, obviously, but it, it is really creating fear and trauma for people across the country. Now, in terms of Democrats, I think that the White House, the the main leverage that the White House has is with medication abortion. Because of the Hyde Amendment, the hands are tied in terms of using federal lands and some of the other things that we were all trying to come up with in the moment. But um, because of the Hyde Amendment, hands are tied. And so the way that probably the White House is going to be able to have the biggest impact is around medication abortion. That is making sure that um, people can obtain pills in their pharmacies. They did pass a rule in December of 2020 overturning a Trump rule that uh, was there before. But the FDA is moving relatively slowly on this. And we need urgency because this is a crisis. And you're going to hear me say this again and again. Yeah, We need telehealth because this is a crisis. And so the White House has said they're going to do these things with Secretary Becerra, and I'm, uh, I'm, I appreciate that. I think we just need the urgency. And then we also need the bully pulpit of the White House to be used. And so I hope that we see not only Vice President Harris, I hope we see the president coming out and saying that he supports carving out an exception to the filibuster to codify Roe v. Wade if we get two more Democrats uh, pro-choice Democrats into Congress yeah. in the Senate. But all of that, it, it, Joy, it, mm-hmm. I'm just going to say, Go you've heard me talk about eliminating the filibuster, right? And yeah. the system is broken. And what's happening in the vacuum of the Senate not acting on everything from voting rights to abortion rights to gay marriage, you name it, gun reform, is the Supreme Court a radical extremist Republican controlled Supreme Court 
is stepping into that vacuum and now using this vacuum as an opportunity to overturn settled precedent, not just Roe, but as we know, signaled with the majority's opinion and with Clarence Thomas' uh, concurring opinion, Griswold, Lawrence, you can go through and name them all, Obergefell, all of these things. And so that's why it's so important that we take a bold executive action that Congress, that the House pass whatever we can pass, that the two senators who said that they were misled by these members of by these uh, members of the Supreme Court, that they I think it's incumbent on them to actually turn around and vote for an exception to the filibuster to codify this now. Do I think that's going to happen? Maybe not. So that's why the November ballot box then becomes so important. I'm glad that you explained that, and I wish we had more time, but I think it's very hard to convince people to give Democrats more power when people feel, well, you're not using the power you have. But thank you for explaining. The House is passing all the bills. The Senate is where they're dying. And if you don't get two more senators in there to replace those two who aren't playing ball, nothing gets through that Senate. So that's how you really get power. you got to add more people. That that is, unfortunately, that's that's what you got to do. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. And up next, the tragic death of 53 migrants in Texas exposes Republican lies and hypocrisy on immigration policies as we array a Supreme Court ruling on Trump's controversial remain in Mexico restrictions. I'll be right back. On Monday, the dead bodies of 51 migrants were discovered in an abandoned tractor trailer without any air conditioning. They were found on the outskirts of San Antonio, where a city worker heard a cry from inside the truck. More than a dozen survivors were taken to the hospital. Two later died, bringing the death toll to 53. Five children are said to be among the dead. A Mexican official confirmed that 27 of the victims were Mexicans, 14 were Hondurans, and seven were Guatemalans. Officials are still trying to determine the identities and nationalities of the remaining victims. Today, the United States, Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala announced that they were working together on the investigation. Three people have already been taken into custody. Immigration experts tell NPR that the migrants were not likely brought over the border from Mexico in the truck. They were more likely brought in through a very sophisticated operation that entails vast networks into Mexico, Central America, and all throughout the United States. They suspect that the migrants were loaded into the truck somewhere in the United States. Sadly, this has happened before in San Antonio. 39 migrants were found in similar conditions back in 2017. Ten ultimately died from heat exposure. Joining me now is Maria Hinojosa, founder and CEO of Futuro Media Group and Pulitzer Prize winning producer and host of the Suave podcast series. Great to see you, my friend. Um, Let's talk about this. It is incredibly tragic, but it feels like these are the kinds of tragedies that happen when you make migration so hard that people become so desperate that they're willing to climb into or put even their children into the back of a, you know, an air conditioned truck. You know, Joy, uh, it's good to see you too, sweetie. Listen, as I was thinking about this and, you know, right now what you're going to hear is it's the smuggler's fault. It's the smuggler's fault. It's the smuggler's fault. You know, I've been covering this for several decades now, and smugglers have been bringing people over in all of the entirety of the time that I've been covering this story. And you didn't used to hear these kinds of stories, these kinds of deaths. This is, in fact, a result of the police state that exists now along the U.S.-Mexico border in general. And in Texas, people just don't realize you can't kind of just get in a car and drive through the state of Texas. The Border Patrol is everywhere. There are checkpoints. And this is what people will resort to. It is horrible, 
it's just an absolute horrible, horrible death. And it feels even more difficult in a moment when our country is just everybody's reeling. And it's like this is part of our country, too. Yeah, I mean, particularly in Texas, has had more than its fair share um, of of death and horror. But this is now a multi-country tragedy. People from multiple countries died um, in the back of that truck. Uh, The governor of Texas is trying to, of course, use it for political fodder, blaming President Biden. But the reality is we still have the remain in Mexico policies of Donald Trump. The Supreme Court is right now litigating whether or not the the Biden administration has to continue to operate based on Trump's rules, which they are currently doing. If we if the president of the United States can't even change the rules by which migration is, you know, is sort of policed at the border. What can we do? Right now, the whole remain in Mexico policy has it was created by the Trump administration. So you're right. The problem is that the Biden administration has not been able to rescind it and now may be forced because of this very strange Supreme Court that we have in power in the United States of America. Joy, what what can I tell you? Because I was recently on the Arizona-Mexico border, and what you see is the Remain in Mexico policy is it's created havoc because instead of a situation in which there was some kind of order, uh, a processing of of people, uh, returning them to places, cities where there was some kind of support for them. The Remain in Mexico is basically, oh, we see you, we just take you and throw you across the border wherever you are. So that means that you are taking people and forcing them into a much more vulnerable situation. We've been reporting about this, Joy. How much more can we say that the people who died, for example, these people, uh, the 53 people died, they were the people who still have dreams about this country, Joy. They're the ones who still think the capacity of this country to deliver on these dreams. And yet they are dying because of heat and because of trying to get away from the Border Patrol. Yeah. And indifference. I mean, we, we are, we're in a situation right now where it is laughably impossible to even think about passing immigration reform. Um, even just a straight DACA bill would never go through the United States Senate, it would be filibustered. There would never be enough Republicans for it because they've decided to make immigrants the enemy. It's part of their campaign platform. And you don't have enough Democrats who are willing to mess with the filibuster. You've got two who basically side with Republicans. So I don't know how you give hope to communities when Everything feels paralyzed in terms of the power to change it. Look, you know that this is the long haul, right? Here's a piece of data that people need to know. The Latino and Latina voting cohort, we don't vote as a block, but we are the second largest voting cohort in the United States of America. The median age of Latinos and Latinas is 11 years old. This will not be forever. This kind of very specifically anti-Latino, anti-Black immigrant and refugee kind of targeting, the kinds of things that we now are ashamed of that people that this government did during the height of the Nazi era, that will ultimately go away, Joy. This can this is not sustainable. And Latinos and Latinas ultimately will, in fact, in fact, as we have, turn out to the polls more consistently. The issue is the Democratic Party. And what they do. And at this point, as you know, Joy, I'm like, listen, President Biden, do something even performative. We'll take it. But the lack of action, it's going to come back to bite you. And frankly, now we know that bites all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're all intertwined. And we surely know that now in this era. Maria Inahosa, my friend, it is so good to see you even under these circumstances. Um, Thank you. And still ahead, the conservative Supreme Court blocks the creation of a majority black 
congressional district in Louisiana, because of course, diluting the voting power of black people. Surprise. We're back after this. The past several days, well, help the past several weeks, have felt like one long, never-ending nightmare, and it just keeps getting worse. Yesterday, the Supreme Court used its favorite tactic, the shadow docket, to decide that Louisianans would not be allowed to have two majority black districts in the state. The conservative justices put on hold a lower court ruling that said the state had to draw new congressional districts because the map that the Republican legislature drew and will now use was racially gerrymandered. A third of Louisiana, 33%, is African-American. And despite that, they will not get proportional representation. This fall, the state map will ensure five majority white districts out of six. Even more disturbing, and this is really pretty upsetting, is that this is yet another signal that the conservative majority on this Supreme Court seems eager and ready to invalidate the seminal Civil Rights Era Voting Rights Act for the same reason that they overturned a woman's right to choose, simply because they can. And that is tonight's readout. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.